0: Let's pray together. We thank you, our gracious God, for your word, which we pray will address and refresh us, granting us insight, leading us in the way we should go. We pray this, that you might bless our hearing and our preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Mountain climbing, is not a sport or an activity that I have ever been involved in to any great extent. Uh, Driving up a mountain, yes, but walking from the car park to the summit, uh, but not climbing... uh, Walking from the car park to the summit, yes, but not climbing a mountain from the very bottom to the top, no. But I do know enough to know that when you reach the top of the mountain and can go no higher, there's only one way you can go, and that is, of course, flat or down. Last week we were at the end of 1 Kings chapter 8, and perhaps we are getting close to the high point of Solomon's rule and reign. I don't mean to say that everything is downhill from here, rather things plateaued for Solomon, before they began to run downhill, just like you will often find at the top of the mountain, a plateau or a flattened area. So in this one chapter, chapter 9 of 1 Kings, we don't see the wheels falling off and Solomon's life coming to a crashing halt. But we do see small cracks appear. And as we move through these chapters, especially chapters 10 and 11, we will see those cracks getting wider and deeper and eventually become so big as to end up too big, even for Solomon, even a man as wise as he was to deal with. So I'm taking this chapter as the middle years of Solomon's walk with the Lord and his reign as king. The middle years. Not the first section of that walk that often starts out with a supply of zeal and energy, but the middle years. Times when our walk with the Lord has matured somewhat. But because we've travelled so far already, With the regular passing of time, there is the danger of falling asleep at the wheel. So in 1 Kings 9, Solomon is in the middle of his reign. He's just finished that major accomplishment in building the temple and the dedication service have gone off so well. The people of Israel have returned to their homes with full bellies after a feast That lasted a whole week. And because things have gone so well, this is a real danger period for the king. And why is that? Because when things are going well, we can begin to take God for granted. Pride grows within us. Dependence upon God lessens. When things are going well, a whole new set of temptations arise before our eyes. The temptation to lessen the pace and conserve energy. The temptation to lower the levels of zeal. The temptation to allow little weeds to grow and tolerate their presence. We see it in the life of Solomon's father David, don't we? After all his victories over the surrounding enemy nations, it was the sight of Bathsheba through his window that brought him undone. Think about that. Think about all the enemies that David had to face and fight and win over, and yet how he lost That battle, that one battle. So it ought to be no surprise that God appeared to Solomon in chapter 9 to remind him of his responsibilities and duties. He does that because Solomon might very well be tempted now to rest upon his laurels and live in the glow of the past accomplishments and the glory of all that he has just achieved, the work of his hands. So the chapter has two parts to it. The first part telling us how God appeared to Solomon to call him to faithfulness and responsibility and duty and warn him of the consequences of failing in those areas. And the second part, a summary of some events in Solomon's reign which tell us of some of the lesser highlights and some of the tinier cracks that are just beginning to appear. First from verses 1 to 9, let's see the king facing an internal review. It was because the Lord is merciful that he revealed himself to the king in verses 1 to 2. And we must note that he did it with a sense of urgency and with great timing. It says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The word build occur- occurs in this whole section. Nine times revealing the extent of the king's drive and his energetic efforts in that respect. But that's all done now. The time of building is finished. The period of busyness is past and gone. And as often happens after such intense busyness, dangerous temptations are lurking in the shadows waiting for the king. Solomon would not have known the story of another king, Nebuchadnezzar, who we met in our studies last year in the book of Daniel. But had he have known, he might have learned a thing or two from Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that in Daniel chapter 4, that Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon 12 months after God had given him a very clear warning, deal with your pride, Nebuchadnezzar. And there it's recorded that he said out loud, is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And That was that for Nebuchadnezzar for a time. And it could well have been for Solomon also. Except that God paid a visit to Solomon. This was a mission of mercy to him. Because the human heart tends naturally towards pride and taking the glory for things that aren't yours to glory in. They say the devil is not far from the top of the mountain once you've climbed it to tell you how great you are. Pride does that. So God appeared to Solomon to exhort him, to confront him. Let me ask you, have you been confronted by God recently? Has he come to you in his word to remind you about your responsibilities and your duties and to pop your ego? Maybe you've had a time of success, be it in business or study or sport or relationships, and you need to be reminded that none of this success voids your duty to Him. Solomon reminds us that a merciful confrontation from the Lord is so needed because we tend towards pride. The next verses three to nine then neatly divide into three parts, uh, telling us three things. With verse three, telling us that Solomon, telling Solomon that God had heard and answered Solomon's prayers at the temple. That's the first one. The Lord said to him, "I've heard your prayer and your plea, uh, which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house." that you have built by putting my name there forever my eyes and my heart will be there for all time God visibly answered Solomon's prayers in chapter 8 but now we see God reminding Solomon that he had answered Solomon's prayers in chapter 8 for God to be a prayer answering God at the temple This doesn't mean, of course, that every time a prayer was slotted into the wailing wall at Jerusalem today, that God hears and answers those prayers. For For a start, it's not the same temple. And then also, this temple was only ever in anticipation of the final temple of God, which, as I've pointed out all along, is us. We are the temple of God collectively, and each one of us individually. And so the fulfilment of this promise is found here among us. If you are in Christ and come to God with your need, then he will receive you and he will answer you. Verses 4 to 5, the second part of this, are a confirmation of the promises made to David as God makes clear that Solomon needs to walk in his As his father David walked, with integrity of heart, with uprightness, doing according to all that he'd been commanded, keeping his statutes and rules. And if he would do this, then his royal throne would be established forever. And then verses 6 to 9 tell us of the conditions that Solomon would need to fulfill in order for this to happen. Note the language that's used here. See the conditional language. If you, then I. Those conditions are important. Solomon's hold on the throne would be conditional upon obedience. That's not to suggest that his salvation came about by works. Not at all. Every Old Testament saint was saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, who was to come. But under the covenant with Moses... Physical blessings were obtained and secured by obedience. Saul lost the kingdom through dis- disobedience. Solomon would lose the kingdom through disobedience. And so here we are shown this connection between the king and the future of his kingdom. If the king sins, then the whole kingdom will be cut off from the blessings of God. And we are told that. And if the king sins and leads the people into sin, then God will abandon the temple and abandon the city, which he did. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. The people of God might sin too, but the sin of the king will especially bring about punishment for the nation and they will lose the land, the temple and the throne for sin. It's a tough call, but it highlights for us the importance of obedience, especially if you were a king. And so what we know from the rest of the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, well, there weren't very many that passed the test, were there? There weren't very many that were up to scratch, preparing the way, of course, for the king who would come and who would be up to scratch, the one who would give perfect obedience, the one who would not fall into temptation or sin, but by his full and complete obedience, even to the point of death, would win for his people much blessing and eternal reward. But that's not where we are at the moment. At this point in time, it's Solomon facing this challenge from the Lord to pursue the path of blessing by being wholly devoted to the Lord or lose it all by allowing sin to give him an uglier reward. In fact, no reward. And I find it amazing that though God knew just what Solomon would end up choosing that even now he appeared to Solomon with these words, offering this to Solomon. Here is the path, Solomon. Walk in it. It was never too late for Solomon to choose the path of obedience, no matter what that involved, because the price of disobedience is just too high. Secondly, in verses 10 to 28, we see something of the king facing some external challenges. The middle years of Solomon's reign start out with this warning from the Lord, but then we, the reader, are invited to survey several events in the unfolding of Solomon's reign. And as you read through the record of his actions, the question that we're being asked in all of this is this one. Did Solomon make the choice to obey God obediently? Sadly, it appears on the surface of things that he did not. These verses give us a quick rundown of a variety of different daily types of kingdom duties with some of them anticipating what was to come a bit later on. Note them with me. Verses 10 to 14 deal with the international relations, especially with King Hiram of Tyre. Hiram, you'll remember, had helped Solomon with the building materials and expertise for the building projects. Solomon and Hiram had entered a partnership. We're told of the mutual giving of gifts which must have made up a part of that agreement between them. Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in Galilee, the land of Asher, and Hiram gave Solomon 120 talents or 4,080 kilograms of gold. That's a lot of gold. But of concern is that Hiram thinks he's getting a raw deal. The worrying part of this agreement is not that Solomon seems to be the dominant partner in this lucrative arrangement, but rather that he's selling off parts of the land that God had given to him to Gentile neighbours. Outwardly, this looked like smart politics as the trade corridor was controlled by these two major powers. But unfortunately, fundamental compromises were being made for such progress to continue and this would come back to bite him hard, especially when Hiram is not happy, brother, with the kind of land he's getting. There's a crack just appearing. Verses 15 to 23 tell us of the matter of constricted labour for Solomon's many building projects during the 20 years that Solomon devoted to the building projects, he not only constructed the temple and the palace, but the building called the Millo, which you can look up, likely to be a terrace for his bride, the daughter of Pharaoh. Defensive walls around Jerusalem, also rebuilding other places, Pharaoh had given as a dowry and of fortifications along trade routes. But these verses also tell us, that the forced labour that he used was drawn from the remaining Canaanites in the land. Apart from the fact that many projects became a major tax burden on the people, the idea of slavery for riches does not sit well. What would have been occasional became organised and planned. Cheap labour becoming part and parcel of his economy. Another layer of concern is added in verse 25 in terms of religious observances. We're not to think that all this time he was not religious because he was three times a year. Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So while all these matters of concern are going on, Solomon is still going through the motions of worship. See, sadly, the practice of religion can make us feel secure against the encroaching effects of sin. And it can turn what ought to be the cure into a catalyst for the problem. And while this is going on, While Solomon just seems to be starting to drift, another danger is presented to us, verses 26 to 28, that his wealth is spiralling upward. We've met his horses and his chariots. Now we meet his fleet of ships who with their trained soldiers... Uh, sorry, sailors, came back from an overseas trip with 420 talents of gold, 14,280 kilograms worth, at today's prices, $500 billion. Surely this would become a snare for the king. Well, how to apply this? I think some lessons are fairly plain. They don't take much teasing out, do they? There are two. Let's think about the dangers of drifting. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, in which he records the imaginary letters of a senior demon who is well experienced in tempting souls to his young nephew, a demon, who is just starting out, records these words from the older uncle to the younger nephew about tempting his charge to sin. He wrote this. You will say that uh, these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters. You are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy is God. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, The safest road to hell, it's a very well-known quote of Lewis, is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I've mentioned already that this was a dangerous time for Solomon, this plateau that he's reached, the glory that's now associated with him, the riches in his bank account, the success he's known under the blessing of God. You might think that young believers need warnings while they are vulnerable in the faith but who of us think that they need warnings when they have accomplished such things, such great things for God? Or have seen such evidences of God's presence filling the temple. And the reality of his blessings in the way that Solomon has just seen with his own eyes. We all need to remember, no matter where we are on the journey of faith, whether we are young, middle years, or getting towards the end, that sin and temptation can take us at any point. And we cannot afford to let our guard down. Peter reminds us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the right way to resist him is to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him, being sober-minded and watchful. We know how it will turn out for Solomon but how's it going to turn out for you? Are you like him in the middle years? Maybe on a plateau going neither up nor down? Maybe even making no progress with sinful habits? Maybe even openly keeping the externals looking good with no internal devotion? to the king. Let this call for Solomon to guard himself be a call to you to be sober and guard yourselves from sin and commit yourself to God to walk in his ways no matter what stage of walk you have reached. The warning in Hebrews 2 is apt where it says this, therefore we must pay And then secondly, let's think about the importance of daily obedience. And we must think about the importance of daily obedience in the light of knowing that Jesus has done all that is necessary to secure our salvation. We are not in the position of do or die, but we obey because Jesus has done it for us. And so we receive these commands to obey here given to Solomon in the light of the gospel. We're not under the same covenant as he was, but we serve the same God. And the God we serve still calls us to hate sin as he hates sin in his children as, he, as much as he does in the unbeliever. He may not act to remove land or rain or afflict our nation because of sin. He may. But that does not mean that there are not spiritual consequences that will be ours if we don't walk in his ways. And so this call to Solomon to walk with integrity of heart and uprightness is ours, not because we need it to secure our salvation but because Jesus has secured our salvation for us. And what it calls us to is not only the externals, keeping those things in order, but also the internals, keeping our heart in order. And as much as we should expect negative consequences when we're not walking in the Lord's ways, so we may also expect positive consequences of knowing the Lord's blessing when we are walking in his ways. But to do that, to do that, it's a challenge, isn't it? From day to day to week to month to year. And we need much grace to do this well, as Solomon here found out. Let's pray for that grace to do this well. Our gracious God, we thank you for your confronting of us in your word. You reveal yourself and you reveal our hearts and you shine a light here and there and show up a dark corner or something we'd forgotten, or something we're not doing well. Even perhaps coasting, as Solomon appeared to be, and not paying careful attention to the things you were saying, outwardly showing that he was obeying, but inwardly revealing that his heart was not right. Forgive us, Lord, if that's us. Help us to walk with you as we ought to from the heart. Forgive our wayward steps and give us grace, we pray, that we might ever walk before you as we will sing in a moment your blessing will be realised and we will know the blessing of God upon us. Grant us these things, by grace we pray, for we cannot do them ourselves and we cannot achieve them any other way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.